Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Hunter McMahon, the Chief Operating Officer for iDiscovery Solutions. Hunter's a reliable strategic partner, leveraging data analytics for litigation, investigations, data privacy, compliance issues, and more. He served as a testifying and consulting expert to corporations, both large and small, while working with AM Law 100 and boutique law firms. Hunter's a member of the Sedona Conference, working groups one, six, and 11. He's also a member of the American Bar Association Defense Research Institute and the International Association for Privacy Professionals. He began his career running IT and litigation support for a mid-sized law firm and has recently led teams of experts for similarly situated companies. So Hunter, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, what the heck is 1, 6, and 11 all about? Uh, different groups. So anything about e-discovery, international e-discovery, theft of IP, you've got data security. So it's just different working groups within the Sedona conference. Okay. So the people within that would know it, but outside people, we're not supposed to, right? It's not like you're on SEAL team six or anything. No, no, nothing that glorious. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I, uh, I originally started out wanting to be the next Doogie Hauser, and I, you know, absolutely wanted to be a, a medical professional or a doctor uh, and then soon realized that my brain just doesn't work that way. Uh, I couldn't retain the information and really understand and memorize all of the stuff that was required for the periodic table and the different organic chemistry. And an academic advisor said, you should think about law. So I was like, eh, law is always a backup, but okay, why not? And ended up uh, taking a couple classes, breezing through them and was like, wow, this is fun. Uh, what I realized was I, I like big picture and then drilling into the specifics. So if I can get the general rule of law and then know the 92 exceptions underneath, I can retain it, I can understand it, and I can leverage it. Versus science, you start with the micro and then build to the, mic, uh, the macro. And so I, over the years, I ultimately went to law school. I ran IT and lit support for a law firm while I went to law school at night and then ended up uh, having more fun on the data and the technology side of things as opposed to the practice of law. Motion practice just simply didn't get me excited. Uh, so I stayed with what I love to do. I stayed on the consulting side. And here, you know, over a decade later and consulting and data analytics uh, with an kind of a focus on the structured data side of things. Uh, and now I run uh, this as a CEO or the, ugh, the COO <laughs> of IDS. I team up with our CEO uh, to run the company as a whole. Interesting. So you, you graduated law school when, 10 years ago? No, back in 2000. Oh gosh, 2011. So almost 10 years ago. Okay. <laughs> I, um, so after the global financial crisis, so you've been, you've been, okay. And then, um, and right out of law school, where did you go right out of law school then? So out of law school, I worked for the law firm and then I went into a uh, consulting group after that. So we were the ones retained in servicing the law firms that I used to retain. So we were the group that came in and managed the digital evidence on behalf of the law firm for the litigations. Did you get your law degree or go to the bar or whatever it's called in the US? Yeah. So I got my law degree. I never sat for the bar primarily because I always felt like if I sat for the bar, I was then competition for my buyer. My buyers are typically the attorneys. And so if I'm not, if I'm very clearly not practicing law, which I don't want to do, I am therefore not one of their competitors. And so I, I chose not to 
sit for the bar because uh, I was focused on the data and the technology side of things. Interesting. All right. So you've got the practice of law. What area did you specialize in? So at the time, back in the, when I was in the uh, law firm, we were a general defense group. And then right now, what we do is we focus on the discovery side of things. So IDS as a whole, if you talk about the digital evidence, all those text messages you thought you deleted yesterday after you sent them, that's what we come after, right? We come after, we'll look at all of your logs for every activity, every Zoom meeting you have, every chat you have on Slack, you know, all of the clubhouse logs, the uh, emails, everything. And we look at all that to paint a picture of what happened from the digital wow. evidence. Crazy. So there, and there's a lot of footprints out there, isn't there? Oh, the explosion of it is, I mean, at some level it's insane, but it's not, at, it's not at the same time. Right. So we sit there and, and we want to be connected everywhere. We want to go. We want to touch you. I know you're a big fan of disconnecting and vacations and whatnot, but at the same level, we as consumers always want to be in touch. So I've got my phone here, my tablet, my computer, another tablet, a Facebook portal, you know, and different devices that I can, I'm connected with, but every interaction leaves a trail. It may leave a trail on the device. It may leave a trail in a log of a system because you touched that system when you went and accessed it through another device. But there's a consequence to all that. And there's a lot of privacy aspects of it, but setting that aside for the moment, you're leaving this trail. And then the problem is, is you challenge somebody and you have to look into that trail insofar as what really happened. So one of the things we found is contextual data can tell you more about what happened rather than content. So the example I give, I could tell you that I worked out for three hours this morning, got a really good workout in. I spent an hour of that stretching and then I got to work. And this all started at 5 a.m. I could email that to you. That's good content. That, that says I did a lot, right? Or you could look at my heart rate data and realized that I got about a 30 minute workout and a little bit of a walk, took my shower and got right to work. Right. right. So what tells a better story or a more accurate story uh, closer to the truth? The, the data can, but it doesn't come without consequence. Right. So you have to always understand the limitations of the data before you kind of take it at, through. Yeah, I found out about an app about three years ago called PhonePaw, which I'm sure you've heard of, where you can actually plug in your phone and it actually has a copy of all of your old text messages that have been deleted on your phone, all of your old WhatsApp messages that have been deleted on your phone, like data that we thought is gone, isn't even gone. So there, there's a couple of different ways to look at that. One is most of the applications on your phone, even your computer run on a database. And so the optimal way for an application to perform is simplicity. So it wants to go in Going through a database cleansing and everything else like that can be operationally or computationally expensive while the user's using it. So they just flag the message and say, hide it from the user. As far as you're concerned, it's deleted. It's then the device or the operating system will choose when it cleans that up to actually delete the record. Or you got another side of that that says, where else does that record live? Mm. So you, you exchange text messages with somebody, you delete them on your end, they still live with somebody else. There yeah. was a destination. Sure. And that destination could have forwarded something on to somebody else. So when you sit there and you kind of talk about, well, it's never deleted. Sure, it can be deleted on a device. That, that's kind of a misnotion, right? But it often lives somewhere else that can be tracked down, either partially or completely. This was about 12 years ago. It was after I left the firm 1-800-GOT-JUNK. They got sued by a franchisee for a discrimination case, which they ended up winning. It got thrown out. And um, this woman had sued for um, saying that she had been 
I guess not harassed, but um, biased against because she was an African-American female. And the court pulled six months of email trans or emails that the, the entire 1-800-GOT-JUNK had received or sent over a six-month period. Mm -hmm. They didn't find a single trace of anything, a joke or a racial slur, even between employees, not about this person, but just even making like a racial joke. And that's how they actually threw it out was they had all this digital data. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Providing like the, or showing the trends or showing the, um, the context, I guess, or. Absolutely. So that's more of a content based in analytics, right? So you're actually going into the content of the email and finding out what's going on. And we do that. We absolutely do that. That's kind of a traditional e-discovery services that we, we process and we leverage uh, lean review and our different techniques that leverage content analytics to try to get you there faster. Cause there's a whole bunch of junk in there, no pun intended for your email address, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, of noise in those emails that weren't even relevant to potentially being a joke or something like that, a discriminatory joke. We also, we, we take that approach and that's kind of, that's been well-established. And then there's also this other approach though, that says, well, how did you promote people and what approvals and did somebody get discriminated against through the system, the HR system? Did they get unfairly treated? Somebody else get promoted over somebody else? What does the statistics look like? And our role is not to opine on you know, what, what is right or wrong, but it's to help make the data available so that you know, the attorneys can tell a story. Okay, so you're just trying to pull the data so that the attorneys will argue it. You're not trying to create the case. They're creating the case off whatever data they can get you to pull for them. Right. We help them leverage the data. So attorneys, most attorneys didn't go to law school to play with data. Right. They went to law school to, to go through motion practice, to go to the courts and argue and all that kind of stuff. While I went to law school, I have much more fun making the data accessible to attorneys who don't normally access that. Right. So we, we go through the visualizations. We go through all the queries and all that to say, here's what the data says. Now, how does that interchange into your your strategy. Why does this scare me similar to the book Freakonomics, where you can almost take the data and make it show whatever you want? Like you could pull all the data together and show I'm the best dad in the world. You could pull all the data together and show I'm the worst dad in the world. You know, it's kind of like whoever has more paper wins almost, is it? Yes and no. I mean, I mean, the good thing is that the technology is available today and they're certainly opposing experts. So we come against an opposing expert that, that disagrees with us. They say, no, we believe that the class size is this and the damages are this. There's always somebody on the other side. Now, whether or not they're as good as us, that's a different story. But our goal is to be able to analyze the data from an uh, unbiased position to say, here's what the data is saying, because we have no vested interest in the outcome of the case. We are paid regardless of the outcome. And so we want to stay as impartial as possible and tell you what the story is. And I, I, I promise you, it's not always what the client wants to hear. We've had plenty of cases where we run the investigation and our general recommendation with, uh, you know, alongside counsel is go settle this case. Yeah. You've got a problem. Yeah. Interesting. So do you work with a lot of the legal experts then that are being hired to testify? Is that who your clients are or who are your clients typically? So we are the experts that come in and testify uh, primarily about what we do. We are usually retained through counsel and or in-house counsel. So some clients retain us directly through the corporation and then others are outside counsel through the law firms. Interesting. I'll have to um, connect you offline with a, a friend of mine who does some, hires a lot of legal experts. He's out of um, New York City. I can't grab his name off the top of my head, but I'll do the intro because he's got a pretty good sized firm. So if, yeah. if you were to give a company or an, a senior executive some advice related to 
to this in terms of protecting themselves and assuming that this is a, a person in a company that's not doing anything wrong. They're just like living their day to day as a normal executive. What are the things we need to do to protect ourselves and to um, protect our company in terms of, of data that's going to be used against us later? So uh, assume that there's data out there, number one, right? I mean, there, there's a couple of different ways to look at this. One says you're, you're actively trying to hide something or limit the information. I don't think that that's necessarily the best approach because your primary motive should be better business. Yeah, right? and I'm not, I'm not worried about those. Those people are kind of screwed anyway, right? So right. let's not worry about them. Let's worry about the company that is just, you know, they sell widgets and they're good people and they live their core values, but somebody is going to sue them at some point and they want to make sure mm -hmm. they're protected. So it's not so much about making sure you're protected. It's making sure that you do the right thing once you know. So oftentimes what we see is, uh-oh, the phone got dropped and we didn't go collect it. We didn't go get it soon enough. Or somebody said, you know, it, kind of the pennywise pound foolish scenario of, no, 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 we don't want to worry about that yet. We think we'll win. Make sure that you collect the evidence early and make that easy. It's a safety net. That's just a low cost. Bring in the right experts or the right legal counsel who has the experience to say, where is all the data? Because I guarantee you, somebody's going to ask for the data. It may be as simple as email, or it may go as intricate as your internal chat systems like Slack or Teams. They're going to want that stuff. Make sure you've got the mechanisms in place to keep it. Because the last thing you want to do is end up in front of whether it's the EEOC or, or court itself or some kind of regulatory body and say, sorry, we didn't keep it after we knew. That's the worst scenario. Mm, for sure. The other side of that is assume that somebody else on the other end is taking screenshots. So an old story of Snapchat, right? When everybody thought Snapchat deleted the, deleted the picture, my aunt would sit there and take screenshots every time she looked at it. It's like that defeats the purpose. And she's like, well, I can't look at it fast enough. And from that point, it kind of became one of these notions of assume somebody else on the other end is going to leverage that against you and you're going to have to defend it. And sometimes that's okay. You've just got to explain the context, right? But that's where having all the data matters as opposed to only they saved that email, only they saved that portion of it, right? You want all of it because then you can explain the whole scenario. And if you've made a mistake, understand that you made a mistake and figure out how to navigate that mistake rather than live in denial because you don't have the data. Interesting. So, okay, walk us through IDS. What, what exactly do you guys do? Give us it in layman's terms so the average business person can understand it. So we help both legal and compliance navigate their data through requests, right? So you could get a request from a regulatory agency, you could have an internal investigation, or you could have an international dispute or a domestic dispute, uh, civil dispute. And we come in and we help you find all the evidence, acquire it, so gather it, collect it, and then use it. Because that's a big thing, right? I mean, you could do a collection off your hard drive, but you might not be able to make that usable as an exhibit in the court of law. Yep. And so that's, that's, that's what we do. We try to take that digital evidence that can be super complex, super convoluted, yep. layer it all together. Because that's the big thing. Most people think of it in silos, right? Well, here's my email. Here are my text messages. Here are my Slack. Well, I've got emails and Slacks and text messages back and forth between a whole bunch of folks. Sometimes you got to layer those things together to really understand the situation. Interesting. All right. So tell us about your firm. How many employees? Where do you operate? What kind of clients do you typically work with? So we're about 50 employees, uh, primarily throughout the United States. We've got offices in Washington, D.C., Georgia, and California. Uh, of course, everybody's virtual has been since, uh, since 
middle of March last year now, almost a year. Uh, and then we also have an office in London. I was sharing with you before the podcast, I was in London the first week in March signing the lease to the new office. When I landed back, we closed our offices and have not reopened for regular business since then. But fortunately, we, we had a very distributed uh, model anyways. And so we were able to operate remotely pretty easily. We had some, some hiccups that we had to navigate, primarily handling of physical evidence, uh, which you know most people take for granted that you can ship and receive hard drives mm -hmm. well in computers and mobile devices. We had to navigate that and just rework our workflows on how we were going to make that happen. Interesting. All right. And what's your leadership team look like? What's the makeup there? Yeah, so we operate under EOS. Uh, so we have our visionary, our CEO our and founder, Dan Regard. Myself is the integrator and COO. We also have a chief financial officer, Chris Conway. We have a director of sales and marketing, Jonathan Sachs. And then we also have our chief information officer, Mark Gianturco. And what was it about the the um, IDS that, that got you to join them? Did they come after you? Did you go after them? Oh, that's a funny story. So Dan Regard, uh, let's see. It was a little over two years prior to me joining, found me at, a, at a, actually a Sedona networking conference uh, in Texas, uh, working group one series, and uh, comes up to me and says, two years, McMahon, two years. I'm like two years for what, Dan? In front of clients and colleagues and everything, two years before we worked together. And I was like, okay, sure, Dan. And I had known Dan for years in the industry. And uh, sure enough, it was like two years and three months. I made him wait an extra couple of months. Nice. But uh you know, I, I remember, I, you know, I was actually sitting here in the basement, just like I am now and talking to Dan for months. And it was, it was really his vision, um, thinking through what we could do through data analytics, as opposed to what we were doing and having fun in that space. And so I joined IDS originally as the director of data analytics and then ended up taking uh, the role of COO at the beginning of last year. Right. I love that he... Uh, kind of poached you or pre-poached you, almost persuasion. And it's the best, I think it's one of the best places to hire great employees is when you're at networking events and at industry conferences, because it shows that that person is either investing in themselves or being invested in, which is a good sign when the company's investing in the person or they're there learning. And then anyone who's there, who's really game on, right? If they're just hanging out in the bar the whole time, it's like, yeah, they're either doing lots of deals or you just don't need them. But when you <laughs> see the people that are really working the event, for me, that's always a really good sign of the people that I want to go and, and poach at some point, right? So, so he definitely had his eyes there. Yeah, we, um, Dan and I have a very good dynamic between the two of us. We, uh, we're high intensity, both of us. Uh, we're always on. You can rarely find us up with the off switch. Uh, and it, it's fun, though. It's exciting for us. So the impromptu calls on the weekends and all that, that that's when the best brainstorming happens. It's when we, we kind of chat things out. Uh, but we probably connect far more than most people. So, I mean, it's odd to go a day without us talking a couple of times, almost like you would be in the office. And you're near Atlanta somewhere, but didn't see in the same region? No, he's up in DC and okay. currently in Pennsylvania with everything going on. So, okay. So he's, so you and he aren't in the same office day to day. So how do you stay on the same page with him as CEO and you as COO? What is the, I know you talked about EOS, but walk us through some of the systems or what you do to stay on the same page with each other. Yeah. So uh, like I said, we, we talk a freakish amount, um, but we can be in the middle of a conversation and we can stop at mid-sentence and pick it up three hours later, right where we were. We just have that level of synergy between us, which really helps us be able to kind of stay dynamic with the business. Also stay with family because we can stop you know, our conversation and go have dinner with the family and then pick it back up later. So we have that 
that respect for each other's time to be able to kind of start and stop as needed. The other thing that we've done is, of course, we have our L10 meetings, which is our entire executive team every Tuesday. But we also, he and I have different sync meetings with the different uh, executives every other day of the week so that we can focus on theirs. So Monday, it's finance. Tuesday, it's information technology. Wednesday, it's sales and marketing. Thursday's finance again. Friday's admin uh, ops with him and I and our, uh, our assistants. And it really lets us just kind of look at all the different dynamics of the business at least for 20 minutes a day, every day, but it's different, different aspects. Give us an example of a sync meeting with, let's say marketing and who's doing the sync meeting with marketing then. So Dan and I will be on as well as our director of sales. So he's part of the executive team and we have a running agenda kind of quick recap. What's going on? What's the focus for the next week or, or kind of the, that rolling seven days? You know, what are we stuck on? Any hiccups that we need to tackle and any decisions we need to make? And then we generally have a back burner list that just kind of tells us, all right, look, we're still aware of these things, but they're not the priority right now. Right. And then how about for you and Dan? What do you do in terms of you guys having meeting rhythms with each other? Or is it just constantly talking? It's constantly talking, but I'd say, you know, we usually get to a, a pinnacle point and I'd say it's probably once every 10 days. Well, we'll take an evening and just have a fun meeting. And sometimes that's business strategy, talking about a three-year picture and, and you know some big, big goals. Or sometimes it's just reviewing one of the cases that our team is working on and saying, this is some fun analyses. And, and we find that in the evenings, you know, after the kids have gone to bed and we can kind of disconnect and we don't have client emergencies, we can have that almost old school fun, right? It's because we do love what we do and we've yeah. both done it. That's where we can kind of have that creative mind share. How does a company that focuses on kind of analytics and data and scraping everything together stay high level on the data in the company? Like, how do you not get overwhelmed or allow yourselves to get, you know, you know what I mean? Like you, you guys could pull up every possible breadcrumb of data on how to run your own company, but there's no way you could run the business that way. So how do you prevent that from happening? Or does that even occur to you? So when I'm looking at where I'm going to spend my time, or where we're spending our initiatives and our goals, I kind of put it in three different buckets, right? Is this going to increase revenue in the client experience, right? So revenue focused. Is this limiting our growth? So something that's a hurdle, an efficiency problem that I'm not getting, you know, the efficiencies we need out of a team member, or this is something that when we grow, we're not going to be able to sustain, or is this simply operational and we need insights, right? And if I prioritize that way, Almost all of those offer, all of those unnecessary data streams, all those unnecessary data points, yeah. they fall to the back burner just naturally because those those are usually operational, and if they're not directly impacting revenue or our performance from a client experience standpoint, it gets backburnered. And if it falls off the radar after a couple of weeks, it kind of goes into the abyss and says, "Well, if it comes up again, then we know it's a recurring theme that we might have to address." Sure. But if it's coming up again and again, that means it's probably connected to revenue somehow. We just haven't figured out how it's connected to revenue yet. And so we'll take a we'll go through an idea session on that. Interesting. Now, I, I love traction. I love, um, you know, there's lots of really interesting operating systems that exist from different groups. What have you had to do to take these systems from EOS traction and, um, you know, adapt them or iterate them for your company? How have you had to give me an example of one system that you love from traction that you've, you know, tweaked? So the L10 meetings are a great, great example. Our L10 yeah. meetings, we are very, very, um, 
disciplined about it. We follow the agenda and we make sure that we have them. But what we found last year, actually in Q3, uh, we needed kind of a jump start and a positive growth momentum. And so we started taking once a month, we take the L10 and we focus on a growth opportunity IDS session. So it's, we don't review the scorecard. We don't go through all the other agenda items. And we try to get everybody out from behind the computer and go for a walk and talk instead. But it's, it's a brainstorming. And so it's very visionary. It's what is a great opportunity that's out there that we can tackle as opposed to tactically going through business operations? Because we're still tackling those no matter what. We still have the scorecard updated. We still have our issues list. And if there was something critical, we were going to have a conversation anyways. But we really make sure that we focus once a month on that visionary aspect because that's where the fun is. And that's where we keep yeah. that's where we keep the momentum going as opposed to back on our heels just executing. Well, and you're touching on something. We used to call it our storm meeting at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. We did it once uh, the third Thursday of every month. And it was just time for us to get strategic. And strategy has nothing to do with planning. Strategy is what if. It's talking about opportunities and what ifs. And, and we always looked out. Now, we only looked six months to 12 months out, but it was because we were growing 100% a year for six years in a row. So when you're doing 100% growth com compounding, um, six months is a lifetime. A year is just, it's, it's kind of crazy because you're going to go from 30 million to 60 million in 12 months and then do it again. So we would look out at least six or 12 months and just brainstorm around stuff. And you're right, that's where the fun is because the team then got to, and it also stretches the company, right? Because you're, you're kind of ideating at a cool level. How about you and Dan in terms of your roles together? How did you split your roles and responsibilities between the two of you with him, Visionary, you integrator? How did that, or, or was it already done in terms of the leadership team? Oh, that's been an interesting dynamic. So both Dan and I are doers. We've done what our company does. And so from that standpoint, one of the things we both struggle with is being less of the consultants and more of the leaders in the company. And so we've had to make that last year, part of EOS is we define the one thing, right? What's your one thing? And mine was to leverage, leverage others' experiences for the betterment of the company. And, and that really translated was delegate. Uh, make sure that you're doing what you need to be doing and not what you used to do. Uh, so when we look at it, you know, when we look at our roles, a lot of what I've tried to take off of Dan's plate, because prior to me being the COO, Dan was both. He was both the visionary and the integrator trying to run the company and did successfully for years. But for us to grow, we knew that we needed to have somebody kind of focused on getting stuff done and let somebody focus on the growth and the opportunities that are out there. And so where Dan remains heavily involved is our our client developments, our marketing, our sales, and actually we're still working on cases because he's still one of the preeminent testifiers in the country. So he's still working on cases. In fact, he was in deposition today that he still work, is very much involved in the client front while then I will take on much more of the operational and the administrative aspect of things and making sure that we're at an excellence level there so that as we put it, when he brings the work in and, and the rest of our director rev pros and, and our, our BDMs do, that we then have the operational excellence to be able to execute them at the IDS standard, which is a high standard. That's interesting. Talk to me about delegation. You mentioned that, that you have to delegate more. So do you have a system for, for delegating? Do you have a, a way that you delegate? I'm Delegate Delegating is, a, <laughs> is, is really a skill that most people never get trained in. So I had a client that challenged me and, and I've, I'm not the best at it. 
I still struggle with it, but I'm aware that I struggle with it. So I know that I have to make a conscious effort to do it as opposed to it coming kind of as a default mechanism for me. So a client, gosh, probably six, seven years ago when I was building an old team, uh, told me that I was, I, he forced me. And when I say force, he challenged me very strongly to go on a trip without my laptop for a week. I had to work through the team. I had to figure out a way that through my phone and only my phone, I could get stuff done, which at some very big level forced me to delegate because I couldn't do the things that I was used to doing. I couldn't just take the report and edit it and do it, right? And from there, I learned the art or, or, or this, the kind of the, the strategy of that there's, a, there's a balance between taking the time and walking somebody through something, which is, is expensive if you think of time being your greatest asset. But then you got to think about it if I walk them through and teach them how to do it, that then saves me doing it for 20 times the rest of the year. Is this something that's going to happen 20 more times? Or is this something that's going to happen once? It's going to happen once. It might be something just to get done. If it's going to happen multiple times and this is a recurring issue, you got to take the minute, you got to take the breath and actually help them understand or delegate it to somebody else so that they can, but you can't just sit there and keep doing it yourself. Uh, the, we're, we're launching a course right now called invest in your leaders. And one of the modules is on delegation, but the second is on situational leadership, which really dovetails into delegation. Have you ever studied anything on situational leadership at all? It's really, when you think about the project that you're delegating to someone, what's their skill level on that project? And then what's their commitment level on that project? And based on those two things and evaluating whether they have no skill, some skill or high skill, and then no skill, no commitment, some commitment, high commitment, you end up with a point value that gives you one of four different leadership styles to use when you're delegating that project. Because sometimes they need to be micromanaged. Sometimes you can just hand them a project and walk away because they've already got it, right? And Or you need to coach them or problem solve. But there's a real science even behind you know, that idea of delegation as well. You probably get a lot of it intuitively and, and some leaders do, but others just fall into the trap of always doing it the same way. Yeah, so I look at it as a, do I want to be doing this in six months? And, and, but sometimes, and one, one of the things that I've learned, sometimes I've got to do one with somebody to be able to teach them on the next one. They've got to see it in action. It's, if they haven't done it before, they've got to learn from seeing it done. Then they get to do one and then they get to, you know, kind of run with it with, uh, with a, uh, an advisory, if you will, right? Like somebody still watching their back and willing to back them up, but at the same time, they know how to run themselves. Yeah. Now, have you studied this kind of stuff at all? Have you read books on it or watched videos on it or taken courses on things like coaching and delegation, or is this just become intuitive to you over the years of leadership? I'd like to say it's become intuitive, but no, <laughs> I, I, I read a ton. Um, I, I read a ton. I listen to a ton of podcasts, a ton of, I, I prefer articles over books just because I'll call it my attention. I lose a book halfway through because I'm moving on to the next concept. If I think that it's been fleshed out enough, uh, lately I've been doing a lot of blinks from Blinkist. So that gives me great information. And then the ability to go take that concept, research it a little bit, digest it and move on. Um, like the, the recent one was the difference uh, I, I took was the difference between total addressable market versus total addressable problem and really focusing on total addressable problem as opposed to market, because that's something that's already there. That if you focus on the, the need as opposed to who, th who you think needs it, the people who know they need it, 
then you can get a really uh, tight ROI on where you're spending your time and new, new efforts. That's interesting for sure. The, uh, a client that I used to coach in Geneva would figure out the projects that he was working on over the next three months. And then he would read Harvard Business Review articles tied to those projects. And he found that Harvard Business Review would, re- would release these little booklets that would have like 10 case studies all related to a specific theme. So he really focused his learning kind of re- really related to those core projects, which I thought was really interesting because you're right. There's so many business books that you read, especially if they're Malcolm Gladwell's. By the time you finish the second chapter, you understand the concept. You don't need eight more chapters to get through it, right? right? And I enjoy that. I enjoy stories that go with them. And when I traveled more, I did a lot more audio books um, because when you're walking through the terminal or you're sitting on the plane and getting some work done, you can listen to them. Uh, but now that we're not traveling anymore, I kind of lost that. And then I realized, wow, I've got a gap right now. And I, I, I went a couple months without doing a lot of reading and I felt odd. And so right. I was like, I got to get back to it. But the summaries from Blinkist are great, you know, in articles that we find and a whole bunch of news feeds in our industry that you can, you can uh, t- take advantage of. Now, you've joined the COO Alliance recently as well, which is the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. What was it about that mastermind that grabbed your attention? So one of the things I knew coming into this year was, I I mean, I felt like I knew business and I knew our company really well. Uh, But one of the things that I learned when I left the law firm and went to the consulting side was that there was a whole world I didn't know. And I knew my world really well, but there was a whole world I didn't know until I saw it. Literally just, you know, going on a consultant side and being able to be exposed to hundreds of clients as opposed to me being the client. I realized that there were a lot of advantages to seeing different perspectives. And so one of the things that I knew real quick this year, as I took on the new role that I needed were were different perspectives and a sounding board, not from an internal, is this going to fit, but what are we missing and how can we challenge this? What resources are out there? And so I was actually talking to Gordy and, and trying to understand, you know, what's the dynamic of the network? And, you know, the Slack channel has been huge. I mean, you've seen some of the exchanges and the exchanging of resources, not from a, you know, here's exactly what to do, but here's what we've done, found the good and the bads. So that when you're going through something or when you've got an idea, you have a network to bounce it off of. And and one of the things that I've found throughout the year, talking to clients, industry cohorts and all that, especially on my coffee walking talks back in October, uh, was different businesses and different perspectives have a lot of great ideas and they're not all that different than what we do. So leveraging their experience is highly advantageous, even though their businesses may not directly align with ours. Yeah. Yeah. I call it ideas having sex that you take a couple of ideas from a few different people and they merge together and come into something else. Right. Yeah. So, so you and Dan, um, has it just been an easy ride the entire time or have you guys had your occasional, you know, good conflicts as well? Well, we have our bouts, but our bouts are, you know, I, I it's usually a, a matter of where we spend our time and attention. Uh, I, he is the quintessential visionary. Uh, on an average Monday afternoon, he's got 922 new ideas. Uh, and I am a very strong integrator. And so I'm very tactical and sometimes very focused on just getting stuff done right in front of us that we need to get done. Um, and usually it's, it's, I'd say if there's ever a disconnect, it's because one of us comes into a, a meeting with kind of a, a rigid agenda that things we need to block and tackle. And one of us has more of a, hey, let's brainstorm mentality. And you can just see it. It's one of those conversations. You're just like, we're struggling through this. Let's, let's stop this and reconnect later. And it was just, it's kind of a misfire, if you will. 
Um, but rarely, uh, rarely are we on different pages, which I think goes to, you know, talking all the time and talking about the good and the bad. And I'm yeah. very, very quick. If there's anything going on, it's a quick briefing. Got it. But once you in the loop and I think that, and, and he does the same for me, Hey, had this one conversation, they're coming your way. Here's what's going on. And it makes it very easy to give each other those quick briefings rather than having to dwell on something going on. That's cool. Now we're recording this January 22nd. So we're just kind of in the start of the year. Do you set new year's resolutions for yourself or goals for yourself that you're focusing on? Is there anywhere that you're trying to, to grow or improve as a leader this year? Yeah. So, uh, my one thing this year is to bring more, uh, more cohesion throughout the company for the client experience. And so looking at our organization as a whole, we have different service lines, different disciplines, different areas of expertise, and we're really focused on bringing that to a, a I'll call it a super cohesive, right? But just this, this level of experience for our clients across the board that nobody else can compete with. So, so my goal as a leader is bringing all of the different teams and folks and, and processes together to make that happen. And, and that requires me to get out of the weeds um, because I can't be in every project. I can't do everything you know, myself. So that really makes me step back and look at the bigger picture operationally as opposed to just project by project. Uh, but myself, you know, I, I, uh, I, I re- New Year's resolutions to me are they're, they're like immediate setups for failure. You're just you're not yeah. going to do them. Right. And so this year I kind of took on a different approach and I said five things for 25 days every month. And so I tried five new things uh, that for 25 days you evaluate, you reset and you do something different the next month that may continue something. But the whole idea is growth and habits. So read a Blinkist every day stretch 15 minutes every day, run 50 miles in a month, you know, those kinds of things that just, it helps you grow personally, but also in a discipline. Uh, and that's, this month was the Blinkist and a couple other things. And so that's why I'm, I'm back to reading and loving it because it kind of jump starts the morning. It gets, gets new ideas flowing uh, in less than 15 minutes. I love that. My sister is um, a bit of a badass and she's doing that 75 hard program. Have you oh. heard about that? Yeah, I'm very familiar <laughs> with that. She's on day 22 of it. She was an elite ski racer and she's been a CEO for 25 years. She's a badass. So she's, yeah, she's on day 22 and she's like, yeah, you should do it. I'm like, no, no, I really shouldn't. <laughs> See, I, I back when, uh, before COVID hit, I, I love Spartan races, the obstacle course racing. Yeah, of course. And I've done tons of them. I, I did it with a client up in Lake Tahoe last year at the world championships, or I guess 2019. Uh, and so I have a ton of fun with that, but with all things going on, you know, the races are not the same as they used to be. Uh, but I got a, a group of friends here in the neighborhood and we're doing the DECA fit, which is kind of a modified version of a, of a decathlon. If you, uh, five different stations, 500 meters. And, and so yep. we're training towards that in, in April. Uh, and my goal is to just not, you know, just finish right now, finish strong. I should say not very cool. Last. Do you know the reason why Joe Dispenza walks around carrying the 45 pound, uh, you know, weight the, the kettlebell. Oh, he's had a few of those. He, you know, yeah. it's discipline and it's, 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 uh, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stories that go behind it, but one of the things that I loved about Spartan and I believe it, you know, in a career progression is getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, and so I love the races because you're never comfortable in those. Well, he, he actually told a friend of his that he would carry a kettlebell related to how much weight his friend had lost in a certain amount of time. And his friend lost 22 pounds, so or 20 pounds. So he was carrying around a 20 pound weight, but he was over in Europe and he lost the kettlebell. The airline lost the kettlebell 
So someone in Greece bought him a an ancient kettlebell from like 150 years ago. It's this huge rock with an iron handle, but they messed up and they bought him a 20 kilogram kettlebell. <laughs> so now he's walking around with a 44 pound ancient kettlebell everywhere. I'm like, dude, that is badass. Oh man. All right. Hunter, if we're to go back to your 21 year old self, you know, you're just kind of getting out of school or maybe 23 year old, you're kind of just graduating law school. What advice would you give yourself that you wish you know now, but you, um, you didn't know back then? Ooh, great question. Listen more. Um, I, I think that, you know, especially my younger self, you were quick to provide solutions and quick to provide answers when asking more questions and listening more still to this day brings true. Uh, we, we, we are a huge advocate for, you know, active listening and really understanding the problem before proposing the solution. Uh, and I think that, you know, especially the, the young gunner, if you will, quick to provide the answers, right? That's what we want to do. And we want to be that solutions architect really fast, right? We want, we want to make the client really happy when most of the time understanding the problem, you know, what's the problem behind the problem? What's, what's the hidden problem is usually where the big value comes in. Uh, and so the more you can listen, the more questions you can ask with in, in a collaborative setting, usually the better the out, the, the exceptionally uh, exception outcome. It's amazing. Hunter McMahon, our guest today on uh, the Second in Command podcast from iDiscovery Solutions. Thanks very much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Cameron. Yeah, it was awesome. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.